and welcome to the PR Department Podcast. You're through to your host, Katie Braden, and this is episode 26. And today we're going to be discussing the role of the founder. So the founder of the brand, um, what that means, how involved they are in terms of PR, when it works really well, when it doesn't, all that jazz. So I work with a lot of founders. Um, So with the clients that I have and have worked with over the years, a lot of them, you know, I've had my fair share of corporate companies, but a lot of them are smaller brands, startups, what we call founder-owned companies. And what that means is when a company is founder-owned, it literally is founder-owned. And I know that sounds so stupid because it's like, of course, the founder owns the company, But especially in the beauty industry, a lot of the time, a brand will grow to a certain, you know, size and then they will get bought by a bigger corporate company, for example, Estee Lauder, Coty, L'Oreal, those kinds of guys. And this happens all the time where a brand will start, it'll be founder owned, owned by the founder, it'll grow and grow and grow and then they'll have these like million, multi-million pound super deals where they are then bought by what is called a parent company. So for example, if somebody is bought by Estee Lauder, Estee Lauder then becomes their parent company and they are no longer a founder owned brand. You know, operations, ownership of the brand, creative direction, all that jazz is then taken away and is put under Estee Lauder. Sometimes the founders do stay on on, um, but they take on a different role a lot of the time, which I will obviously delve into and explain. Um, But this is kind of like behind the scenes. um, And like I said, what works and what doesn't. So as we've established, the founder of a company can be the literal founder who is still in their kind of founder, CEO, director position within the company. Um, Or sometimes they can be a shareholder of a company. So they might have been part of the original starting of the company, um, but they are kind of the leading face of. And this happens a lot with brands. And I don't think consumers are really aware of it it doesn't really matter um it doesn't really change kind of the ethos or the morals of the brand because ultimately that does sit with the founder but there are usually multiple people involved and it is very very rare actually to find a company that is started by a founder and funded solely by the founder so what i mean by that is let's take um isamaya french so as an example so she's just started isamaya beauty amazing brand I'm so into it what she's doing is so exciting if you haven't checked it out go and check it out because I it's one of my favorite um, brands to see develop she's still in the very early stages and obviously Isamaya is a really big name really well known in the session and makeup world um, you know she's had like an ongoing relationship with Byredo I believe she also had a relationship with Mac don't quote me on that but I'm pretty sure she was like quite prevalent in that community you know she works regularly with people like Sam McKnight, you know, she's she's very well known. Anyway, so she starts her brand, Isamaya Beauty, um, and while she is the founder, and Isamaya Beauty is still classed as a founder-owned brand, she recently discussed in an interview um, with 032C, again, amazing interview, um, 
you need to go and read it. Uh, <laughs> I'm giving lots of references and we're only like four minutes in, but hey ho, this is what we're doing today. Um, she did an amazing interview and she actually specified and cleared up that while she is the founder of the brand, she does work with investors. So this is where and this is, I'm, I'm speculating here because obviously it, I haven't seen the books for Is My Beauty, but I would speculate that she is a shareholder of the company. So she's sort of put in a certain amount. The investors have put in a certain amount. She owns a share of the company, but she acts as the public face of the company. Um, so you have a lot of companies like this that are like, you know, you have like a lot of professional hairstylists, makeup artists, influencers who are then the shareholder founder face of the company the public face but you have other people in the background who are investing or you know assisting with products development logistics distribution all that jazz but then you do have you know very very small companies who I also work with where they literally start the company with their own money they are the founder and they are responsible for everything so it really is a scale you know from corporate all the way down to like super indie founder brands. Now that we're all um, clued up and on the same page as to what a founder is um, and what I'm kind of talking about in this episode, um, I wanted to move on to how I think consumers are resonating with founders and how that has evolved and developed. Um, So I think kind of going back 10, 20 years ago, founders weren't super important like you had your you know your bigger brands like you know all the guys who are kind of stocked in Debenhams like your Estee Lauder your Clinique your why can I only ever think of those two when I think of those kinds of brands I'm well aware that I reference the same brands every time but they are just like you know your staples and everyone knows what I'm talking about when I say them so we're just going to stick with it um so you have those kinds of brands and then you have like you had a whole separate category which was like your indie brands which are like founder owned like we saw a big um surge in your quote-unquote indie brands when influencers first started coming out with brands like I'm thinking like Jeffree Star Cosmetics like Makeup Geek that kind of vibe um so whilst people were interested in the brand story the actual founder and the founder story who they were what they stood for why they founded the brand it often gets lost in a lot of these kind of corporate brands and I think consumers weren't really bothered like they were more focused on you know the campaigns and what celebrity ambassadors they had and what products they had and the heritage um not in terms of like the ethos and morals but like what their mum what your mum uses you know that kind of thing whereas now um I've talked about this a lot on the podcast but I think people are very much picking brands like they would pick their friends in terms of who do they resonate with do we have the same morals and ethos like do you have the same beliefs as I do you know I only have cruelty free do you only have cruelty free are you vegan you know all that jazz so I think people are becoming more and more interested in who owns these companies and who is making the decisions and who is making these products like we saw it a lot around um, the BLM movement 
where people were calling for companies to show um, their executive teams and it was very very telling because a lot of the time even if like these companies marketing campaigns were diverse the people who were holding the the power behind the scenes and actually making the decisions for the brand were very much like old white men um and there was a big call for change and there was an also a big call for transparency and i think we're currently riding the wave of consumers really demanding transparency and if they are not awarded that transparency there's um you know they're digging their heels in in regards to how much they engage with the brand um also we're seeing a huge huge wave of influencer brands celebrity brands which obviously then they're how much their consumer likes that celebrity or influencer is going to really heavily dictate whether they buy the product or not like yeah you might stumble across like rare beauty by selena gomez even if you have no idea who selena gomez is i mean i'm not sure who doesn't know who selena gomez is they must have been living in a cave for the last 20 years but you could purchase a rare beauty product having no prior knowledge of selena gomez but that is a very small percentage i would say of the people buying the products. Um, so it's becoming more and more important who is behind these brands, what decisions they're making, what their beliefs and ethos are, and also where the profit is going. Um, because with a lot of these corporate-run companies, they're owned by you know these business tycoons, these billionaires, and that money often goes into other things, sometimes politics. There was a recent news story where the owner or somebody very high up in Estee Lauder was basically taking the profit and putting it into um, kind of right wing um, politician campaigns, which obviously in the States are heavily like pro-abortion, taking women's rights away, all that jazz. So even though it is just purchasing a lipstick from a brand people are understanding that you have the ability to vote with your dollar and what we choose to buy and what we choose to make successful because that's another thing consumers are understanding their worth and they understand that they hold the keys to the castle without consumer support launches brands are not going to be successful like they need people to buy the products in order for it to be successful um, so consumers are really taking back their power in that sense. So I was thinking about kind of the the subtopics that I was going to cover in this podcast. And I remembered um, the situation that happened with the brand founder of The Ordinary, um, which is also The Abnormal um, Beauty Company. And I'm going to put a trigger warning here um, for... Uh, mental health issues and um, suicide because this is a a really really dark story but I felt that it would be um, important and an interesting one to cover under the branch of like what happens when founders sort of go bad or things happen with founders that is very public and how that then affects the overall running and public perception of the brand. The person that we're going to be discussing is called Brand... um, uh, what <laughs> I even was reading that and I managed to get it wrong um Brandon Truax and he is an Iranian Canadian entrepreneur he first came into the beauty scene after co-founding Desiem um the abnormal beauty company back in 2012 so this was really one of the most like exciting 
brands and he was one of the like most highly followed founders of the time um so he was really into skincare um he'd founded a few companies before and then it led to the co-founding of Dassiem in 2012 which then led to the development of the cult brand The Ordinary which I'm sure everybody knows The Ordinary in 2016 so if we cast our minds back to 2016 like the ordinary was booming you know sort of 2016 couple of years afterwards everybody was dropping that stuff over their faces you know makeup people beauty people skincare people wellness people everybody knew the ordinary and their products what they stood for and they really made a dent in the beauty industry as being something different because nobody had kind of adopted this like single transparent way of form formulating and displaying their ingredients before and I think the ordinary was actually um, a really big part in how consumers um, demand transparency and also like consumer wokeness. Um, I think The Ordinary had a huge part in that. Ordinary was super successful and was quote unquote founder owned as we discussed at the beginning of the podcast what all that means. In June of 2017 The Ordinary was booming and beauty giant Estee Lauder company announced that they had taken a minority stake. Um, So as I explained in the beginning, Estee Lauder had a minority stake in the company in 2017. Then develops um, through 2018 where Brandon's posts started to become erratic and it wasn't just on his own personal Instagram. He was also posting directly to the brand's Instagram, which obviously then becomes a brand problem. You know, it's already a problem when the founder is kind of becoming this way and publicly posting things, you know, that are deemed erratic. But when he's coming to the brand page, that is when, you know, your minority stakeholders, which are Estee Lauder, will then move in and kind of take action. Um, So in around October, he says that Desiem is going to be shutting down. Um, he wrote a 3,000 word letter which was later deleted um, and Estee Lauder was successfully actually suing him and forced him out of the company by October 2018. Um, by December, so this all happened very quickly, by December 2018 it was revealed that he was hospitalized um, with various mental health concerns within a month and I'm going to put another trigger warning here please do not listen on if you are triggered by themes of suicide Brandon who was 40 at the time which is absolutely heartbreaking so so young I mean it's heartbreaking when anyone passes at any age but um I'm, I'm gonna say allegedly because I don't know where like if this was proved or like if this is fact but he allegedly fell from a um, a high-rise building in Toronto which is such a tragic ending to what was a really tumultuous time like I remember that time um, in the industry obviously beauty was really really booming at that point like all eyes were on beauty um, the beauty industry like beauty lovers and regular folk uh, everybody had their eyes on the beauty industry and this was deemed as like massive drama as you can imagine Um you know, main uh, news outlets were reporting on the fallout, the suing, you know, Brandon's posting. There was videos, you know, from drama YouTubers, like explaining the situation. And then obviously it met this really, really tragic end. So obviously after um, Brandon's death, um, 
Estee Lauder really had a lot to answer for and there was a lot of speculation around his death as you can imagine. You know he fell from a building and there were stories at the time that maybe he was kind of gotten rid of or removed by Estee Lauder because he was publicly you know like really bashing them and in the meantime really affecting the ordinary's brand image along with Desiem um and honestly I think since then the brand has never fully recovered like it has never regained its status as like this front-running um innovative like leading brand it's become kind of one of many under the Estee Lauder umbrella um and this happens a lot obviously when it when a brand moves from being founder owned to having a parent company um it can often happen that the brand kind of loses its spark and it becomes like as I say one of many like part of the wheel you know they're just churning them out Um, and one of the reasons for this is when you are running a founder-owned company you have the ability to act a lot faster and obviously be more creative Um, when you're part of say like the Estee Lauder company I remember years ago I pitched for a I think it was a L'Oreal brand when I was working in an agency and I remember doing the pitch for it and they basically sign off all of their marketing activities two years in advance so any marketing campaigns or ideas have to be signed off and like through the gate two years in advance so like these brands do become very safe and corporate feeling because they're kind of like just ticking over like there's not a lot of innovation and being like leaders because how can you be an industry leader if your marketing campaigns are signed off two years in advance like what you signed off two years ago how is that even relevant now you know like think about what we were doing in marketing two years ago imagine if that landed now it would be like what do you know what I mean? And I, I'm sure I, I haven't worked with um, a corporate brand on that scale for a while. So it might be different now. But because there's so many moving parts, and because a lot of these brands are globally distributed, and there's so many teams working on it around the world. I'm sure their lead times are still very long. But I don't see how they can be two years, honestly. How could you even know what was relevant? I really question. Anyway, going off topic um so that is like a really kind of extreme example of what can happen when the founder of a company um is seen in quite a negative light um you know that example is particularly awful and I would never you know wish that on anyone um but we've seen other examples of like Jeff Jeffree Star Cosmetics I mean we can't touch on like negative founder stories without that you know during the beauty boom like the year 2015 to 18 I would say Jeffree Star Cosmetics was absolutely popping off like everybody was using it and that was really driven by Jeffree's huge success on YouTube um, as an influencer Um, obviously he's come from MySpace the music industry and then worked his way up but I think he really hit his kind of boom and prime around that time and it was all linked to his reviews and you know products being Jeffree Star approved on YouTube was like a huge stamp of approval that they would really see like sales from and you know I'm really not going to go into the ins and out of like what happened because it is like a five-act drama and it is so long it would need to be like an episode of itself which I'm just not prepared to put myself through 
Um, but I'm sure if you were kind of in the mix of beauty YouTube during that time, you will know that kind of Dramageddon hit, which was like all of these influences going off each other. A lot of information came out about Jeffrey, about like, you know, his racist past and how he's treated other people in the industry. Um, and he's kind of was made out to be a very like negative, vindictive person. And off the back of that you then have his makeup products going from like having sold out launches every single time earning multi-million pounds every single time he does a launch to his eyeshadow palettes literally ending up in like the equivalent of tk maxx um so you know that is another really extreme example of what happens when the connotations with a founder go bad you've even had um you know Kat Von D who used to have um a hugely successful cosmetic line which was very based around like her as a tattoo artist her style and the products were known to be really really good like I know a lot of people had her eyeliner which was supposed to be incredible you know they've had some really innovative launches um but you know since she has been exposed for having a racist past and like some issues with her husband again I'm not going to go into details because that's another episode but it got to the point where she actually had to step away from her brand and I think it was Coty who owns um, a stake in her company had to buy her out and since they've had to completely rebrand Again, maybe we can do another episode on this rebrand because it's a very interesting one. They then ended up naming it KVD Beauty um, with an emphasis on it being like cruelty-free and vegan and all that jazz. Um, But because it's called KVD Beauty, to me, that is very, very close to Kat Von D Beauty. So people to this day still get confused and still, when they're sort of talking about products, cite her as the founder, where she's literally nothing to do with the brand anymore. She's not the founder. She has no stake. She doesn't, you know, profit off the company at all. Like they're completely um disassociated with her um so that's a very interesting story um head over to the pr department podcast over on instagram and let me know in the comments or in a dm if you want a whole episode on that because i could talk about that all day because that was a very very strange brand development and marketing choice but again a great example of what happens when kind of a founder goes bad um So something else that I've done through my career is learn how to really like develop the role of a founder, when to push forward, when to hold back. And it really is like a case by case basis. Some of the brands that I have, um, the founder is very, very prominent. Sometimes it's because the founder is literally the person running everything, as I explained in the beginning. And then I have some where the founders are, you know, very much to the back or they will be very prominent in certain areas like business to business or like I have a lot of brands that are, they straddle um, professional and consumer so maybe the founder is very prevalent in the professional arena but not so much directly to the consumer you know it is a very delicate like game of operation um, in managing the role of the founder but in terms of PR strategy and brand building it is something that is it's really important to get right um, because as I discussed in the beginning now it is so important to consumers that role and that person who is the founder. Where I think the role of the founder works best is when the founder is in the mix like people know who the founder is they know the founder's 
background, ethics, um, you know, how they are, what they like to a certain extent. They're in the mix, but they're not the epicenter of the brand. Because my personal experience, when the founder becomes the epicenter of the brand, the consumer becomes disinterested because the founder of a company is not always the targeted consumer, if that makes sense. So the person who has made the brand, developed the products, etc, etc, isn't necessarily the target of which we want to sell the product to, like the end user. So the brand founder needs to be in the mix so that we can communicate those morals, those ethics, but they can't be to the point where they're the like they're the be all and end all of the brand essentially and this is where I see smaller brands and when I say small I literally mean like one man band brands really struggling especially on social media and especially in this new age of video content because they can't afford shoots they can't afford models they can't afford influencers they don't necessarily know how to target or utilize organic influencers they can't even necessarily afford PR really So they become the person who makes all of the content. When you're making content to do with products, um, it's kind of like a known thing that when there's a face in the videos, the videos do better and they reach, you know, higher numbers. So a lot of the time the founder will then position themselves as like the influencer in the content, if that makes sense, like that kind of role. But because they are the only person creating and putting out this content, your whole brand and your whole visual, the founder then becomes the face of the brand. And as I said just now, that doesn't always work so well because sometimes the end consumer isn't the founder and the end consumer doesn't resonate with the founder and it means that if you are the face of the brand and the only person who is showing up on your socials and on your website it then means that the the brand is very flat because it only has one tone, one voice, one look, as opposed to when the founder is in the mix, but they also have, you know, their campaigns and they work with influencers and they have other people on their teams who have different voices, backgrounds, opinions. Um, You know, for the sake of inclusion and diversity, you really need that mix. Otherwise, your brand feels very, very, I would say one, cut myself off there with my own editing, um, but your brand becomes very one note. And that can become dangerous in terms of gaining new customers because the customers that you're gaining are only people who look and sound exactly like you. And that is a very small pool. You know, in today's society, we need to speak to as many people as possible. And as I say all the time, if a customer can't see themselves in your marketing and on your social media, they're not going to resonate with you and they're instantly going to think this isn't for me and move on because there are there's so much competition, especially in the beauty space. There will be a brand standing behind you who is including that person in the marketing. So that is a real struggle and it's a financial struggle for smaller brands to, you know, find a way through that issue. There are ways that it can be done. Um, but in the beginning, like it is so, so hard and I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, the way that, so to summarize, I think the most positive way to utilize a founder within a brand, within brand strategy is to really have balance. Like 
the way that I treat my founders is kind of as if they are like a brand ambassador. Like they're a huge part of the brand story and it's a story that needs to be highlighted and told, but it is not the be all and end all of the brand. And they have to, you know, there has to be other things around that brand ambassador role that becomes part of the brand. Like they are part of a big jigsaw puzzle. They are not the whole puzzle. Um, Also, this then allows, as the brand grows, it allows the founder to step in and step out without really affecting the success of the brand. So the brand can sell on its own without the the founder being in your face on social media, actively selling the brand day in, day out. And that is part of, you know, natural evolution. When you have a brand, you don't ever intend it to stay one size forever. Like brands are supposed to be scaled. That is the whole point of having a kind of like product-based company. Even if it's a service-based company, there's still that scalability, which a lot of people are looking for. Um, A lot of people actually start brands in order to create equity to then sell them on to parent companies. That's often like the, the strategy from the start. So if you can't grow and create that equity without the founder being like with their hands in the brand, um, you know, you, you're really stunting your own brand's growth. So there has to be a, a movability there. Like a really, really great example of that is um, Bobby Brown. So Bobby Brown is actually a professional makeup artist. Like Bobby, Bobby Brown is a real person. Not everybody knows that. So I feel like I need to say that. Um, but she, you know, started Bobby Brown, got bought out, Bobby Brown is now owned by um, a parent company. I believe it is actually Estee Lauder as well. Like Estee Lauder is really like popping off in this this podcast today. They're getting a lot of free marketing. Um, so yeah, Bobby Brown owned by Estee Lauder, I think. Um, and then Bobby Brown herself, the makeup artist, signed a um, a ten year like non compete agreement. And what that means is. Once the brand was bought by Estee Lauder, Bobby Brown herself, the makeup artist, wasn't allowed to create anything that would be in competition with Bobby Brown for 10 years. But the most iconic thing about this story is the day that her 10-year non-compete agreement expired, she launched Jones Road, which is now her brand that she is very much like the face of and it's a founder-owned company from what I can see again she might be like a stakeholder but she is very much the face of Jones Road like you see her a lot on TikTok she's showing demoing explaining the products herself Um, like she very much has a part of it and is driving that growth process but it's very interesting that people still engage and buy Bobby Brown and love Bobby Brown because it has scaled to the point where the founder doesn't need to be in the thick of it you know so that is a really really great example of showing the kind of evolution of how that can work in terms of the role of the founder how big the role is how small the role is and how they move and shift um so I feel like there was a lot of uh, information that was like a very like education based episode but I hope you found it interesting and learned something from it Um, and I will catch you in the next one. Bye!